Hi Greyhounds, I'm hiding in Higgins' old office. Well, broom cupboard. Beard wants me to do the book club, but I've only done a quarter of the work. But I know exactly what to do. Hi ladies, um, I could really use your help. I'm here. I'm here to help, what's up? Hey, what do you need? Okay, meet me on Zoom in like five minutes and don't tell Coach Beard. Welcome back to Coach Beard's Book Club and today I've actually brought some friends with me because I can't do this alone. My name's Andrea, um, I'm in Chicago and I love books and Ted Lasso. Hi, I'm Marita, I'm here in the forests of Oregon and I also love books and Ted Lasso and also like spectacularly overanalyzing things, so that's why I'm here. I'm Bex and I'm from Brooklyn, New York and I also love books and Ted Lasso, so I'm very excited to be here and part of the conversation. Um, and you might recognize a few of these names, given that the last two books that we've done, you three were the only ones to send in comments. So <laughs> we sent in a lot, right? <laughs> and, and I am glad that you did, believe me, because if you didn't, it would have been very <laughs> me just blithering we, away. We have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, good, because I, I like listening to it. So it's fine. And I feel we've got a great dynamic to discuss these sort of topics. And we all come from a, a different perspective. So I am really looking forward to this. So this week we are going to be looking at A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel and this is Roy's book gifted to him by Ted which I understand from Trent Crim is a lovely novel. I mean what even is A Wrinkle in Time? It's a lovely novel. It's the story of a young girl's struggle with the burden of leadership as she journeys through space. Yeah, that's it. Am I supposed to be the little girl? I like you to be. So we follow Meg. Um, and Meg is a young girl um, who feels kind of on the outside, not only within her family, but everywhere, really. She's very othered, and it's following her journey and her self-discovery along the way. So I did actually manage to get some work done with this book, but just a small section of it. So I'm going to start with that. So if I can direct everybody to page 85, and page 85 is where Meg... Um, is going to see for the first time the reality. And the reality is the dark thing, the monster that they can't see. And they can only see it by going very, very, very high up after huffing some flowers, which is, you know, James T. Like you do. <laughs> yeah, like you do. Just get some flowers right up your nose, up in the air. And yeah, the, the fact that the atmosphere is thin is what allows them to see the, the monster. They can't see it from their world. And before they see the monster, they are looking at one of Uriel's moons and seeing how beautiful it looks and how wonderful it looks. But Mrs. Watts, it says, no, now you have to turn around. And when she means turn around, she means it. You can't turn back. You've got to, to face this way. And, and she says, no, child, do not turn around. Any of you face out towards the dark. What I have to show you will be more visible then. Look ahead, straight ahead, as far as you can possibly look. Now Meg's eyes ached from the strain of looking and seeing nothing. Then, above the clouds which encircled the mountain, she seemed to see a shadow, a faint thing of darkness. Charles Wallace said, what's that? That sort of shadow out there. And Calver's ge Calvin gestured, what is it? I don't like it. And when I was reading this, it was like, I haven't got an excellent memory, but something in my brain was itching. And mm -hmm. I was like, I've, this, is, this is really weird. I can't get what it is. And I sat and I sat and I was like, when I did philosophy in university, they taught us about the allegory of the cave. 
and it could be used in a million different ways. Um, but I'll, it's basically just a way of, of um, to demonstrate how we can be unenlightened or enlightened and how we can be fooled by different sort of versions of reality. So that, that kind of clicked into my head. And then I thought, oh, there is a connection here with Roy. So I think what I will do is I'll just let you, I'll, we'll do this together. We'll go along in this yeah. journey together and you can tell me what you think. Um, the, the episode that I'll be referring to is season one, episode nine, All Apologies, also a good song. Um, and that episode opens with Roy and his wheelie bin ice bath which is brilliant love that love that moment <laughs> so so, so like good. you just know it's not a top premiership team when he's having his ice, ice bath and a wheelie bin I love it um <laughs> it's great I assumed it was a British thing <laughs> did you yeah well I've never seen I, that I've never seen that before I, I assumed it was an Australia ouch shout out but <laughs> it could, well that actually makes a lot of sense because you know we know Brett is a massive Muppets fan yeah. actually well, yeah I think that might be I think she's it. spot on yeah I think canon now it's canon (laughs) I think I never even picked up on that see this is why we need to do this together um so yeah Roy sits in the dark and he watches the football um show the tv show I don't know what it's called because I only watch football when it comes to Ted Lasso um but basically the graphic on the tv reads there once was an old man named Roy um Mm. and then when Ted comes in you can tell Ted's coming in to sort of like lighten the mood and he says, um, is everybody gone? And Ted says, well, Danny's still here, you know, doing all this stuff. Danny and Rojas. <laughs> Danny Rojas, football is life. And Roy, Roy calls him. Can anybody remember what Roy calls Danny in that moment? He calls him a fucking arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> Which, the only reason I put this in, yeah, the only reason I put this in is because I think Danny is probably the one in the team who is most in touch with his own self-perception. He's the most self-aware to me. So that's why I thought it was interesting that he picked that. But then basically goes on to call himself a piece of shit to Ted. And Ted, we know, has an agenda. He doesn't like to see people suffer. So he tries to make uh, Roy feel better. Uh, We then see Trent Krim uh, say that Roy played dismally. And Ted calls Roy the backbone of the team. So, so far, we've got a lot of different perceptions coming in from Roy. Um, Beard and Nate claim that Roy is showing his age and his play is declining and he physically can't keep up at training. We see him running, doing the run back and forwards, things like fuck, fuck, fuck. That might have been, I might have done our limit of fucks on the podcast by the time I finished speaking. <laughs> I do apologise. Now, uh, yeah. now we're going to go up to the next rating. Rated E for explicit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not the worst. Well, once we're there, we say. might as well use it. Yeah, we may as well. I may as well get as many of them as I can. Um, then when Ted joins Roy in the stands, remember when Roy's sitting there sort of like morose in the stands, feeling a bit sorry for himself, and Ted joins him. Ted then, he sort of works out for himself that Ted is not going to start him, and Roy feels utterly betrayed so so all of these if you can picture Roy having all of these different perceptions of him my argument is that those perceptions are shadows on the cave wall and what I mean by that is the Plato's cave analogy says that if you were born in a cave chained in a cave facing into the cave and with a a source of light and shadows put on the wall kind of like a puppet show like a you know one of these and puppet shows to those people, that would be their reality, but it isn't the real reality. It's just theirs. If, if you unchained them and let them out of the cave, 
they would be absolutely awestruck with what reality is. And I believe that that is that applies to Roy with his own sort of self-perception. So it's my argument that in the scene where um, Roy is at Kaylee's house for the first time, I think, and Phoebe's there listening on her headphones to, um, I think it's Cream or Zeppelin, I think. But basically, Roy is sitting there, he's feeling really sorry for himself. He's, he's making um, Kaylee want to come. He's feeling so much sorry for himself. But it's, you know, he's still not really listening. And it's not till Kaylee says, Phoebe, could you come here a minute? Can you describe your Uncle Roy? Everything that you can think of. Go. Well, he's my uncle. His beard is scratchy. He buys me ice cream. He swears a lot. He's really funny. And I love him. It's my argument that Keely is Mrs. Watson. And she's mm. took Roy up to the top of that mountain. Um, and Phoebe is that breath of thin air that allows him to see, to see himself. Because I think what's interesting is when he says to Keely, before, before Phoebe's came over, he says to Keely, Roy Kent's been the best player on every team he's been on since he was a kid. I like being Roy Kent. I don't think I can cope being some loser has been called Roy. Isn't it interesting that he speaks solely about himself in the third person there? Mm. Because all of these things that he's thinking aren't his own self-perceptions. They are perceptions coming from Trent Krim, from Ted, from you know fellow players, from the supporters. And then Phoebe brings him out the cave, turns him around and says, no, this is, this is your reality. I love that. This yeah. is what, yeah, this is what you you are. And and the thing is, I know then that's still somebody else, but it's somebody else he cares so deeply about that it means something to him, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, he even had a moment where he said, oh, I told Phoebe I wasn't starting and asked if she was still going to watch. And she was like, yeah, you know, yeah. like, that's not. Asked her to take him for ice She doesn't watch for ice her. Cream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she so, doesn't watch for him. She just mm -hmm. watches because yeah. she likes it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Like, I think he needed that sort of humbling as well because it's. I don't know if this is right, but I feel like those times he's talking about himself in the third person is coming from a place of sports arrogance. Whereas with Phoebe, that's just dropped. There's no arrogance around Phoebe. You know, it's just it's just him. So I think she showed him that. Um, and then... I think with Keely, it was just a case of he would have never have thought to go to Phoebe and just say, what do you think about Uncle Roy? He would never have done that. So that's why I thought of Keely as the Mrs. Watson character. I like that. Especially for people who are in the public eye like that, right? You're right. Like they have yeah. a persona they're playing and, and a thing they have to kind of live up to. Yeah. That's not be. reality. That's not reality. Yeah, I mean, well, it, you see it when these people get carried away with themselves, these famous people, and they lose reality a bit. So, yeah, I get that. But beyond that, I mean, if the, the character's background says he was scouted when he was nine, right? So he, in all the formative years where he would have really formed an identity, it's been this sort of external identity that's been put on him by other people. So he didn't have the kind of, you know, coming of age that most normal people would have. He's been chained in the cave since he was young. He's been chained yeah. in that cave of, of, of perceiving himself through other people's eyes. Yeah. Um, and I think what's really cool as well, and you mentioned when um, Roy is in Ted's a, a flat and um, they're talking, you know, he says, what is it that you'd said earlier that you picked up on? Um, when he'd said, oh, she's going to go for ice cream or she'll still watch the match. Also in that same scene, Ted says, 
um, know thyself, Socrates, rest in peace. Which is really interesting because the cave is, was developed with, you know, Plato and Socrates as well. So it, it kind of like that just clicked into place. I, I, was, I was nearly finished this sort of thought, this process when I, I was watching and I was like, oh, okay. Light bulb. Yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. Um, and then the episode ends with Roy touching the believe sign, which you would, he would have never have done at the start of that episode. That sign, yeah. Uh, for anybody listening, it's on Bex's t-shirt. She's wearing a Believe t-shirt. Yes, I am. Yeah. So I just felt like it really is a journey from the start of that episode to the end of how much Roy changes just from seeing himself through his own eyes. I love that. I think that's that's yeah. a fantastic way of looking at it. Yeah, um, me too. One thing that, that it made me think of when you're talking about all of this is that I kind of see Charles Wallace as like, or Ted as Charles Wallace, like, I don't <laughs> in, in that moment, because he is always trying to, like, make Meg see the good in herself, yes. and recognize the good in, in herself, and, you know, I mean, Charles Wallace has his own demons that he has to deal with, Ted has his own demons, and, um, you know, but both of these characters are full of love for Meg and for Roy, mm-hmm. respectively, Yeah, but they don't necessarily put the work into themselves in terms of of what what would be best for them as well so they're yeah. they're they're considering how do i help others but like also think about helping themselves and honestly sometimes they're a little bit they're both a little bit too confident or maybe you know yeah i know people don't necessarily think of this word with ted but like arrogant in their abilities to help people that they end up harming themselves i agree i agree so there's another kind of similarity there because when charles wallace starts to get stressed or upset or he can't process something that's when he starts making kind of stupid little jokes right like the when someone talks about getting jammed up he asks if it's raspberry or strawberry so when ted goes like full himbo right like when he asks sassy is it mine (laughs) um or you know when he's talking to rebecca and she says sam and he says you'll l jackson right like he just has this sort of weird kind of uh in the book they call it charles wallace's whistling in the dark um verbal processing when he just can't cope with what's going on yeah um, yeah yeah That's i mean the really last that, like i hadn't really thought because i was so f- focused on the sort of keely roy phoebe situation is i hadn't really pulled charles wallace into that and that actually really rings true let's take a quick break for your comments Bohemian Sis on Twitter says, Mrs. Who quotes and tells Charles nothing deters a good man from doing what is honourable. Seneca, and he's a very good man. Charles is darling, but right now he needs her help. Bohemian Sis points out, Roy is actually reading the book to his niece Phoebe, and one has to wonder if when he read this line, he reflected on himself, a good man needing help. So I think one of the things I really wanted to bring up was this idea of using one's faults like finding strength in one's faults right mm-hmm. um that's something that uh now i can't remember which one it was was it mrs what's it yeah it was mrs what's it who said to meg i gift you your faults yes. uh, before sending them off on their own yeah. and the faults that they list are for or that i think meg says them herself but um uh, anger impatience and stubbornness and I was like Roy Kent anyone <laughs> I, also, I also wonder why I related to so hard to this character and I can't quite put my finger on it but yeah <laughs> but that is Roy's 
Definitely. So I want to focus on each one, right? So anger, I thought of uh, in Make Rebecca Great Again, Nate's speech, right? That's mm -hmm. uh, yeah. season one, episode seven, because he's reminding Roy here that like, these are the things that made you great. He says, you know, that other people might think are, are faults, but he says that he's old and slow. Yeah. So maybe that's not the nicest, but whatever. But he follows it up with your anger. That's your superpower. And he reminds Roy in that moment that that's what he needs to use. To, that's what he needs to channel in order to, to have a positive outcome, right? Like all that anger that gets built up is what can destroy us when he keeps it inside. And, and this is Meg's issue too. If she bottles up all of her anger, and doesn't use it to her benefit in terms of saving her brother, finding her father, all of that stuff, you know, um, it's what's causing Roy not to play so well. They need to channel this rage. Like rage is fine, but it's what you do with it that, that really matters. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think learning to do this or relearning in Roy's case, uh, is really what's key here in terms of anger. So, yeah. I don't know. He really is an angry muffin, isn't he? Like, but I get it. Oh, you know? very... I'm so well, annoyed sometimes. Beyond that, like in chapter six, we get Meg talking about when I'm mad, I don't have room to be scared. And so that that anger that Roy has could also very much be an adaptive response from being taken away from his family at really quite a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and then losing his granddad six months, six months later or something, his, his granddad yeah. died while he was away. So yeah, it's kind of like he's put up these these walls of like, Barriers. I'm just yeah. not a very nice person, but he is, he's got a heart of gold. I would say he is a good person. He's just not a kind person. If that makes sense, you know? It does. Yeah, and um, I wanted to add to your comment. It's almost like, I almost even think of it with all of our, our the good things about us and the bad things about us, right? The things that we see as faults and the things we see as benefits. Like sometimes even our benefits can hurt us, right? Like, right. If it you tends. have too much, if you care too much about people and you're worried about people so much, that could translate yeah. into an yeah into an inability to move forward to, to have someone you know help someone grow, help someone learn, and like um, to the same way. Like I think we look at faults sometimes as these really negative things. Yes, but they actually are the things that can fuel you. You know, exactly. when you feel that when you have that strong emotional, like the anger or something, yeah, it can, it can, you know, like yeah. I have the, the, those stories about mothers who lift cars off of their babies, yeah. right? It's that moment of fear and like, pure right? Adrenaline. Like, yeah. Just pure yeah. adrenaline. Yeah. And, and I think like they're the second fault that they address uh, in, in the novel and that I think applies to Roy impatience also sort of plays in here. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different in that like, so Roy's, Roy's impatience is with Jamie, right? He wants Jamie to change. But Roy doesn't want to put in the work to make that happen. He wants Ted to do it, right? He wants <laughs> someone else to solve the problem. But yeah. Ted, Charles Wallace, or maybe Mrs. Witch, <laughs> um, <laughs> knows that Roy is the key to making this happen, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. in, in this case. So there was one quote from the novel that really stood out to me, and it was when, I think it was Meg, if I remember correctly, said a straight line, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was one of the misses. I don't remember, but the quote was- I think it's uh, the description of Tessering. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, that's, thank you. So that was Meg talking about the description of Tessering. No, or some. I think I don't our mother, her. our mother explained it to her at one point, if I remember correctly, because um, she was talking about mm. it. 
she says, yeah, it may have been her mother. Yeah. Okay. Well, the line was a straight line is not the shortest distance between two points. So I had the audio book. So I was enough for me to like write down the quote. I didn't remember to write <laughs> right. down who said it. I have no working memory. It's fine. I could probably write it down <laughs> and still forget. Um, but like that quote to me reminded me of Ted's approach to leading, right? Mm-hmm. Not just coaching the the game, the the players playing the game, but just in general, right? It's not an easy like point A, point B fix. So while Roy wants Ted to say something to Jamie, Ted knows that that's not what's going to solve the problem, but he can't just tell Roy, you have to do it. He has to kind of manipulate it in a way where he's like, okay, so maybe if someone else did it, <laughs> yeah, you could get it done. Right. Um, and, and I think Meg is similar, right? She wants her dad to solve the problem after Charles Wallace is, is taken from good, them. That's good. Yeah. That's brilliant. And honestly, I was the same though. I was like, you're the father. Like, why is she the one having to save him? But whatever, honestly, that, that would defeat the purpose of Meg. He was a bit of a drip for somebody so intelligent, the father. So we'll let him off. But to be fair, that would defeat the purpose of Meg's, you know, hero's journey that she needs to take. So we'll let it slide. We'll let it slide for this one. (laughs) Um, Meg says, I wanted you to do it all for me. I wanted everything to be all easy and simple. So I tried to pretend that it was all your fault because I was scared and I didn't want to have to do anything myself. So like in these, both of these cases, they're too impatient to figure out how to do it themselves. They want someone else to do it so that it's done quickly. Right. Um, But I, I think like Roy's impatience becomes a strength at that moment where he's reading to Phoebe and he's like, fuck, because like, yeah. it clicks with him, right? Yeah. It really clicks in that moment. Um, but what does he do? He goes directly to the club where the players are and confronts Jamie in that and moment. And he nuts Colin, my Colin, he nuts him. <laughs> was it Colin? Yeah, it, it was, was Colin, nutty dog. It was Colin, yeah. <laughs> that was difficult for me, that was hard. <laughs> but, um, you know, like he doesn't wait around and try and figure out the best approach here. He doesn't sit and think on it. He's not like, oh, let me talk to him tomorrow. He's like, no, I need to do something. I'm going to get it done. And this is how I'm going to do it. Headbutting Colin and telling Jamie off in the club. <laughs> and then calling him a child for drinking vanilla vodka. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> yeah, that's really true though. As, and what I think is interesting about that is Roy had two options when Ted didn't help him. He could have just left it. He could have just went, well, yeah. it's not my problem. Well, just not my problem, but he didn't. So that you can tell that Roy, the drive is there. He just mm-hmm. needed somebody like Ted to come along and remind him that he had the sort of power within him to do it. Just well, like Meg. I, just yeah, like Meg. I think looping back to the story, you know, impatience is supposed to be one of her faults. But if you look at the early part of the journey, when the boys are both trying to overthink every last thing, and she's like, let's just get on yeah. with it, yeah. right? Yeah. They're actually able to proceed because she's like, it just has to get done. It's true. <laughs> let's go. Let's just do it, right? <laughs> and, and you know, the third, the third fault that is mentioned is stubbornness. And, um, you know, when Meg realizes that it's her determination that will bring back her brother. She runs with it. She goes with mm-hmm. it. She doesn't think twice at that point. So it's a combination of her impatience and her stubbornness here. Mm-hmm. She uses this as a strength. Like she doesn't give in to the idea that he's gone for good. She like fights back against her father and saying, you know, 
we can't just abandon him. We have to, like, I know he's still there. I know he's in there and so on. Right? And when she's like, I love you, I love you, I love you, like so many times mm-hmm. to, to Charles Wallace until it gets through to him. Like she's mm-hmm. determined, like one, I love you is not going to do it. And she knows it, but she's sticking, she's sticking with it. Yeah. Um, and I just love, and I, I love how much, like, as soon as she woke up, it was like, Charles, where's Charles Wallace? And then it just didn't yeah. stop. And she to him and I just, it was amazing. I really felt it. I felt the urgency in it. It was great. Very set mm-hmm. in her ways. And, uh, and, and it worked to her benefit. It, it was a strength. Um, and and Roy is stubborn AF as well. <laughs> like, he, really? Yeah, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> in case you didn't realize that was sarcasm, I do I am aware that Roy is very stubborn. <laughs> uh, but this is what really drives him to fix this problem that he sees between Jamie and Nate, right? He like you said, it got in his head. He, he something had to do. It was like under his skin. It was an itch. He had to solve this problem, and he couldn't let it go until the problem was solved. And Ted knew he wouldn't be able to, so he, you know, he was able to use, uh, use that f- so-called fault of Roy's as, uh, as a strength. Yeah, I uh, wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. I think it's like so far on the reason of the book, it was just like that there wasn't a point where I was like, that's not really Roy, you know, like it just really fitted into place more so than the, the past couple of books that we've done. Like it felt right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it seemed to fit him start to finish. Yeah. I, I mean, there was no to point finish, was we're like, only in season two, but. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like we, we see his journey so far and he is scared, which is the same as Meg. I mean, look, she's, she was scared. And that's why she wanted her dad to do everything for her. And, and for a hard, gruff man like Roy, you know, we can see it. He's scared. And that's yeah. where that behavior comes from. And we, we see that with Keely again in season two as well with that relationship, you know, that's scared of is, is this going to last? I've never had a relationship like this. You know, I don't know what to do. Um, but you every also... small thing it takes like as a big you know like personally like um when she wanted a little bit of space to watch sex in the city and he, he just then thought that was like a breakdown of the whole relationship and I think that's like what Marita says it comes from having grown up differently you know <laughs> from nine to focusing on a, a sort of career from nine years old some things are going to are going to fall to the side and, and relationships and how they work is probably one of them like it was almost like just kind of yeah like he was so used to kind of being almost the center of attention and you know like right because he's the he was the one like whatever for his family probably making money that they'd never seen right like he became the center of attention and the fact that Keely was just like no I've got my own stuff like you know and he kind of expects the person he's with and the people around him to constantly like yeah be around him and support him you know I don't even know if he does that consciously it's just the way it's always been yeah yes it's not narcissistic in the way it is with Jamie that's I guess that's what I meant by that yeah, the thing yeah, is, when no. he texts her, like she, she, she texts him, like, "Can I go pee now?" or something after he's like told her <laughs> off. He's like, "What? What do you yes. think you are?" Tell him. That's probably the first. Like, I get the impression that that's the first woman because other ones have been after his watch and he's for drug money or whatever. <laughs> um, that's kind of went. No, mm, no, you won't speak to me like that. And that's took you took a bit of an interest in. But I think it also will chip away his insecurities as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, Rita, very interesting. I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting because the book, you know, focuses on Meg's fault as strengths, but it's not the only fault as strengths in the book, right? We have the beast no. in Ixchel who is Meg, 
uh, perceives as having this huge disability because they don't have vis visual perception. And as she yeah. actually opens herself up and learns more about her, she sees what an amazing strength it is because of the way she perceives the world. Or the same way with Charles Wallace, how you know he gets made fun of for all of these, uh, which I, I think could be argued traits that are like on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Um, you know, it, within his environment at school, he gets made fun of, but those are actually huge strengths for him. So being able to, in characters, take those strengths and use them, or sorry, perceived weaknesses and use them as strengths is, I think, a, a recurring theme there. I just have like a, a side tangent for a minute. So I listened to the audiobook and didn't read it. And they start referring to this character as Ant Beast. And, and I was like, Ant Beast. <laughs> those of you on outside of the northeast and uh, well i think Mar uh michaela it's probably the same for you but in the northeast we say aunt no we and say so aunt, I, we, aunt. Yeah, it's like aunt. it's like aunt and as so we don't pronounce the u oh okay okay no, and so that's, yeah pacific northwest it's ant and i got so much garbage for this in boston <laughs> yeah i can't i'm like i i'm not related to bugs like what what are you talking about so <laughs> so I, it honestly took me four or five times that she's referring to her as ant beast to realize she wasn't an ant beast that she was an aunt that would be me beast <laughs> i love that i love that yeah, I think Scottish people would sound weird pronouncing it like that, Bex. Like, I, we just I thought we like got it. I thought we got it for well, it might be like other parts of yeah. the UK. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it might be. It might be the posher bits. <laughs> we're, we're not posh in the Northeast. <laughs> posher than me. Everybody is. <laughs> but yeah, that would have been confused, and I can understand why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Took me a minute, but I got there. I got there. Another pause for your comments. Bohemian Sis says there's many more comparisons to be made of these two tales of Meg and Roy, but for brevity's sake, she'll just mention one more. The scary, at first, yet beautiful, loving Ant Beast and the outrageously obnoxious yet evolving Jamie Tart, two polar opposites who will play pivotal parts in her hero's enlightenments and development. What an excellent point. Okay, so my section is a little bit more uh, general. I like to talk a lot more about kind of the emotions that are happening. Um, that to, that's the thing about reading that I love. Um, I read books to learn about people, to um, experience emotions. I like to laugh. I like to cry. I like everything in between. Um, so for me, that's kind of what, you know, that's what draws me into books. And that's some of the things I like about Ted Lasso. There's a lot of emotions and there's a lot of you know, a lot of personal interactions and that's the stuff that I feed on personally. So, my, you know, my section's a little bit, a little bit more generic in that sense. Um, I do also just actually kind of want to take a moment, if that's okay with you guys, and just comment, like, I read this book when I was a little girl and I loved it. And I have to say, reading it as an adult woman, it was, it didn't quite capture for me that same magic. And, I but I, but I even I read it. I'm just yeah, saying, I wish I'd got I to even, read it when I was a kid, but I didn't, so yeah, I don't, I don't, that's weird. That's you don't have a, mm -hmm. I don't um, have a but I also thought when I was reading it, like, oh, I could see why I loved this when I was a little girl, you know what I mean? Like it felt yeah. still very much a little girl to me, but I don't know. I don't know if Beck or Marita, Beck or Marita, if either you had read it when you were little or had any. This was my first any. read. Okay. I don't remember it from when I was little, but I've revisited periodically because I read it with with my kiddo when he was not 
terribly old. Um, yeah. And of course, we saw the movie when it came out. So, yeah. But most of my uh, most of my experiences as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No. It's just, and like I said, it wasn't that uh, I didn't like the book or that it was. Um, I didn't see it as a negative. I guess you know, like I felt it. I th- I still felt that like that magic that as a little girl I would have felt reading this. You know, because I feel like definitely when we're little kids, well, for one thing, when I was little, definitely, I'm 48 now, when I was little, I, um, like, craved books with girls in them, right? Like, it was such, they were, we always were reading books with about, you know, boys, and, you know, the Ramona Quimby's, the, you know, like, the Beverly Clearly books, all of that, it was just like, just like my, I loved it, because it was just like about little girls, and so it was just like, you know. Um, and having her be, having her be kind of the, yeah, she's the central character. She's kind of the hero of the story, right? She's kind of the one that, that needs to find her magic. Um, just really spoke to me as a little girl. So, yeah, I think it would have really um, spoke to me as a little girl, but I just, it just didn't get on my radar at all. But like as somebody with, um, who I only got diagnosed with ADHD when I was 41. And like, uh-huh. when I read this book, I was like, oh this is really this is I felt some of it you know and I wish I maybe yeah. had a chance to read it when I was a kid because there's so many so I felt very connected to it I think as a kid so yeah. I get that yeah yeah and kind of showing I think it's interesting in this book and actually Ramona Quimby does it really well too where they show some of those negative emotions kids have right like kids have their things they struggle about and the things that they're feeling um you know that that right like if you think about you know kind of what we're talking about everything we've said about Roy up this point that he his childhood was cut really short and he did he really have time to develop all of the normal emotional things that kids go through as they go through school and the normal things he was thrown into a you know into a soccer league football sorry football league <laughs> I'll um, let you, you know, like <laughs> strike one <laughs> There's Real three football. versus one here, but no, I'll call it. <laughs> and as women, we don't. I mean, let's face it. There's not much to choose from, especially you know, with us being in our forties. Like there was less to choose from then. There was a know. lot less. Yeah, I, I like a lot of books with girls. I that's why I like devoured Babysitters Club books because it had seven yeah. girls that they rotated it, through that yeah. I could learn different yeah. personalities. Sweet Valley High was uh, yes. Yeah. Sweet Valley High got here. Yeah, but the question is I Elizabeth or Jessica. I just yeah, it's like but if you're in any way not a girly girl, and a lot of these books at the time were written as girly girls, then it's very interesting yeah. that we're connecting a small child, a small girl to a grown sort of gruff man as well, like. Meg has such a hard rejection of gender norms. I mean, it was so unusual yeah. for the time the book was written because she just flat out doesn't want any of the gender norms that she has. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I struggled with that as a little girl. I, I, was, I was a tomboy, tomboy, whatever. Um, and I had two older brothers and I wanted to play with my, I didn't like my family kept trying to buy me dolls. And I was like, I want to go run on the street with my brothers. Like, um, yeah, so like again, yeah, it kind of it spoke to me a lot, her character. Um, the other section I really wanted um, to talk about actually was the darkness. And I was kind of thinking about it. Um, you know, I, I, I really love, Michaela, what you were saying about how you kind of had to step away from it and look back at it and understand what it was. 
um, and this idea of the cave that was so interesting. And I, I was kind of actually thinking of the darkness kind of being mate, um, you know, like, right. Like everyone was in the middle of everything. They were in the middle of everything. And the thing with Nate was just chipping away slowly, slowly, yeah. slowly. And I feel like that's kind of how this happens, right? Like mm-hmm. this idea of um, like the quote I have here, you know, um, I have a couple quotes that uh, to me speak to this a little bit, but just like nobody suffers here, Charles intoned, nobody's ever unhappy, but no one's ever happy either. Meg said earnestly, maybe if you aren't unhappy, sometimes you don't know how to be happy. Um, wow. Yeah. And like, right and like yeah again Nate like Nate is this gradual like this gradual progression into darkness there's there's no thin atmosphere they can't see what's going on with them because they're too busy everybody's got their own shit going on you know Um, and yeah you're right it just it just it's like um you know a water tap dripping you know, yeah. eventually it'll yeah. fill the sink, but right. it might take a while, but it'll fill the sink eventually. And yeah, that's a really good analogy. That the the visual in the film adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time is fantastic with the dark, right? And that that sort of the tendrils sort of reaching and wrapping, and and that's what I think Nate is a victim of that, right? He he's a victim of like he's being enveloped by the darkness because people like Ted in particular can't dedicate all their time to saving him from the darkness because they're saving themselves from the darkness as well so uh, I think it goes back to that thing you said about the arrogance as well because Ted clearly thought he did everything right when he he could just that was it done you know so I think I saved Nate yeah I've done it it's done yeah and I and I feel like Nate um yeah like so I was going to say that we as the viewers of Ted Lasso we are seeing all the interactions and we're saying like what's going on with Nate what's going on with Nate Right. And Ted was completely like out of left field. He was just like, what? You know, like, you know, Beard never told him any of the interactions he saw that was concerning him. And so it was like, it just smacked Ted in the face. Yeah. I was it kind of, it kind of made me think about like what I said about the last book, um, that it almost felt like a cautionary tale for Sam about what was going on with Jamie. Right. Like he had to read, he was reading this book. Cause like, like, I don't think it was in my, I think you even had put it in the video that you made Kyla, but that I, I started reading the book and I thought I was thinking about Sam, Sam, thinking about Sam, thinking about Sam. At I some always point think about Sam. Book, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally understand. Totally <laughs> For me, I'm an Isaac girl. Um, Same. And a Juno girl. I'm an Isaac and a Juno girl. <laughs> <laughs> right and Rebecca and um but uh what was I saying um that uh that the book started out being about Sam and then I started to think it was more about Jamie and so like Sam needed to read the book to learn about Jamie the idea that everyone on the team um so, so there's this kind of quote here about like um everyone on the team was kind of on their own path doing their own thing and they all needed to like you know, everyone needed to come together and they have started to come together, but it's not right yet. Right. Cause they let, they let Nate fly the coop, you know, they let Nate, Nate has gone too far. He went over there. He's all the way on the, you know, he's in the dark side. He's over on that side. Right. And everyone's involved in their own thing. You know, everyone's involved in their own thing. And it's almost like, it's almost like that cautionary tale for Roy 
to make sure he's stepping back and looking at everything that's happening around him. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I mean, he, cause it's the whole second season I think was about Roy being in his head. Right. Yeah. I'm not gonna, but, I'm not, I don't want to be involved in soccer anymore. And you know, football. Yeah, what, am I, what am I without football? That's strike two. That is strike <laughs> two. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to have some forfeits for this, you know, or I, I, I can't keep my street cred among the, my fellow Brits. <laughs> now I was going to say, but that also makes sense because Sam ends up reading A Wrinkle in Time. Um, which is because that's full circle then isn't it really is that right it's coming back round you know like it's the book taught um sam about jamie and then once he gets the book he then gets taught how to sort of take the lead from there yeah yeah on the emotional side i also think it's worth pointing out calvin um is yeah for the time particularly a pretty good model of non-toxic masculinity right he's strong and he's protective but he'll share his feelings he'll be there supporting meg i mean he let her help him with his math homework which for the time would have been a massive reversal of roles mm-hmm. right and, and he does take it a little too far with chivalry but as these things go he really is you know if we look at the ted lasso universe which is so into that non-toxic masculinity um really a, a great model of that um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, reading the various critiques I did of the book, right, when the book came out, Meg was this, you know, amazing feminist icon. We don't get Katniss Everdeen, we don't get Hermione Granger, we don't get any of those characters without having mm-hmm. Meg Murray first, right? Yes. But then there's mm-hmm. some pushback, we get to the 90s and some feminist critiques were like, you know, it's great that it was so groundbreaking for its time, but if you look at it, at the end, she wins because she takes on this sort of traditional maternal feminine role. And so there's some critiques that are like, well, she only wins because of that. So if we look at Ted Lasso, when we're casting men into that role, it's kind of a pushback on that instead. It's like, well, actually being maternal and loving is a great thing. And instead of just making women do it, why don't we all? Yeah, that's the question. Why is it associated with women in the first place? So like by by that take, it kind of circles back around to being a bit anti-feminist, you know, like like we we get to choose what we do, right? Like That's just the thing, like, you know, that for so often we were mentioning about our own experiences with literature growing up and finding all these books with male protagonists and so on and I could identify with some of them in certain aspects right but it would have been nice to have a female character to connect with in this case we're reversing it we're saying hey men reading this book Roy, Sam, you can identify with female characters too you can see yourself and your experiences Mm -hmm. in in women yeah I love that that's that that's a really good point as well like we we never question you know it's never questioned there there was one last thing I wanted to to bring up about Calvin before we move on though um and and not that I would necessarily compare Calvin and Jamie but um but the moment where Meg (laughs) is able to see Calvin's mom and how Calvin's mom is treating uh treating another one of his siblings or something like that it's very similar to me and when Roy learned about Jamie's father and how like oh Mm. this explains why these people like why is Calvin over the top chivalrous and polite and doing this he's trying to reverse the the trend in his family right and why is Jamie over the top a prick well because he didn't necessarily like he it's the reverse in this case Mm -hmm. but it still explains why why characters like it gives us the background in terms of why characters might 
do some of the things that they do and and so dimensionality basically that's really good about Ted Lasso is that every single character has a reason to do what they're doing and that is except Rupert he's just a yeah (laughs) he's the red-eyed man in this in this book he is he is yeah I'm really looking forward to him getting his comeuppance so (laughs) Mm -hmm. but not by telling him we love him Oh God! Is that where? No, 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 no. Don't love them. Insert insert Jake Peralta gift here. Brilliant. Um, one last quote I wanted to read that uh I think kind of speaks to the um, the gender roles I guess uh a little bit and kind of um the idea of uh our fears is. Um, she wanted to reach out and grab Calvin's hand, but it seemed that ever since they had begun their journeys, um, their journeyings, she had been looking for a hand to hold. So she stuffed her fist into her pocket and walked along behind the two boys. I've got to be brave, she said to herself. I will be. Mm. And I, that, oh, I was just like, oh, so yeah. same that hit me. Uh, hit me. I was like, oh God, just that's such a shame. Like. And right. I felt that before. I felt like should I? I'm, I'm struggling with something, but I feel like I'll be a burden if I try to reach out. So I'll deal with it myself, and it doesn't work. So yeah. if you're no, listening, you talk to someone because it doesn't work. You're not a burden. Yeah. Well, that's it. It's it kind of makes you sad that that she felt that the way to be brave was to go on her own, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As opposed to to having the support of those around her, and, and that's something that I think Roy struggles with too. He feels like he has to solve everything yes. on his own. Let's pause for your comments. Bohemian Sis says, No A Wrinkle in Time commentary could be complete without mentioning the author's wink and nod in our use of the iconic, much-quoted, much-maligned and perennially favourite of Snoopy's opening line, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night, which she personally loved. Great spot. And so what I wanted to talk about, um, first of all, there's a real theme of lost fathers through both Ted Lasso and and in this book. And it's not just Meg Murray's father that's lost, right? Because Calvin's family is so neglectful. I think you can also argue that he has a lost father as well. He's certainly looking for families. And so there's also a big theme in both about found families and how valuable those are and what you can get from them. And so kind of looking at the book and when it came out in 1962 and the context of everything, you know, if you look how Kamazatz is portrayed, it's really easy to do this strict Cold War read of the book, right? Where mm-hmm. it's rugged individualism that can defeat conformity, right? Very rah-rah US, whatever. But so if you take a closer look, and there's a great article in the Journal of American Studies by a woman named Deborah Lindsay Williams, makes this argument that what Lingle is doing is actually showing the shortcomings of rugged individualism. When you look at Meg and how she's able to succeed, she needs the help of this ridiculously diverse group of, you know, not even people, but sort of entities, right? Because otherwise she's not able to be successful in saving her father and brother. And that's really Mm -hmm. very much in the spirit of like Ted as a coach, right? Mm -hmm. He values everybody. He knows everybody's name. He's the one who can see Nate and figures out that he's Mm -hmm. talented because he's willing to talk to and consider everyone. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you look at all the found family, not only with Calvin, who is just instantly like, yay, you guys are my family now, right? But everyone involved, the Mrs. W's, um, the, the beasts on Ixtel, right? Meg's relationship with Aunt Beast, Meg's initially like super revolted by her, right? But as she's she an aunt, more- right? <laughs> <laughs> But so in this process of learning about her and learning to care about Aunt Beast and be cared for by her, she undergoes this process of growth. She learns a lot about herself. And without that being able to love someone so radically different from herself, 
there's no way when she went back to what she sees as the animated thing that is Charles Wallace that she could find her love for this thing that doesn't look familiar to her, right? Mm. She, if she doesn't learn how to love the other by loving Aunt Beast, she can't go rescue her brother. And so Meg really succeeds in rescuing him, not because she's a good girl who loves her brother, right? But because she mm -hmm. learns how to accept help and learns how to accept knowledge from people who are just radically different than she is. You can make this argument that learning to like and appreciate Jamie for Roy, or even mm -hmm. learning to like and appreciate Ted <laughs> kind of gives him this <laughs> yeah. found family. Right? Ronald fucking this McDonald. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love right? that. It gives him this... Yeah. It gives Roy this empathy and self-insight that he needs to be able to work with people. And, and probably mm -hmm. him being able to learn to like and, and at least not hate Ted, right, helps him in his journey to effectively yeah. save. I, I love when he yeah. said, you know, you make it very difficult to love you. And Ted's like, well, that <laughs> means he loves me. He so. loves you. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and well, so thinking about this brings me to another paper because there's this this line in the book that read really weird to me and it's when mm -hmm. it describes itself as the happiest sadist it makes a really big point about you know that's sadist not saddest right apart from the little boy bouncing the ball right and getting tortured there's not a lot of what we at least i traditionally think of as sadism in the book right because it wants everyone to be alike and it wants everyone to be happy the great thing about Madeline Lingle is not only did she write a lot of books, but she wrote a lot about writing and she had a lot to say about what she was writing and why she was writing it. And so there's a maybe social psychologist and philosopher from the 20th century named Eric Fromm. Um, and he actually conceived of this idea that, you know, people being individuals and having free will kind of leads people to a lot of anxiety because with individualism, you have this sense of powerlessness and this sense of insignificance. And so people can react to that in a couple of ways. And so how he conceives sadism is actually as escaping that anxiety by trying to completely dominate the will of others. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a, a form of abuse, but not how we usually think of sadism. And then yeah. the other way to look at that is, is masochism then becomes wanting to give up your strength and independence to a stronger whole and getting rid of that anxiety of individualism by doing that. Um, so a woman named Julie Strait writing in a, uh, it's a journal about children's literature called Lion and the Unicorn, um, sort of went through this and talking about, you know, Lingle was definitely well aware of from, she even sort of name checked him when she won the Newbery uh, award for her book. Um, if you look at Meg, she should be really, really susceptible to it because she does desperately want to give up responsibility, right? She wants mm -hmm. someone else to be in charge. It, the thing mm -hmm. is, is she just wants it to be her dad, right? She doesn't want it to be it. She wants someone yeah. else to take care of things. She just wants it to be her dad. And so Lingle and Fromm both have this sort of similar definition of responsibility. And it's also a little bit different than how we might normally think of it because it's the ability to be responsive to other people's needs. So Fromm talks about this as one of the elements of real love. So to be responsible is actually kind of being able to respond to what people need and take care of them. So once Meg gets to Ixtel, if that's how we're saying it, um, she starts accepting herself rather than hating herself. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, it's giving opportunity to wipe out her identity and not have any responsibility anymore. But that loses its appeal. Right. Because now she accepts herself. She can accept her difference and she can start taking responsibility to others. And so she's equipped to do this resistance. Mm. And it's really if you look at. So this is a, 
an explicitly Christian book, right? Lingle was very clear about that. There's Bible quotes yeah. through it. Jesus is a big deal in it, right? And Lingle's theology is, is really clear in her other writings because she writes straight up about theology. And so she considers free will as basically God's greatest gift to humankind, right? Which makes it kind of funny that she named a character Calvin, right? Because Calvinism is all about, you know, predestination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But when you talk about like how Lingle actually considers love, she considers it an act of throwing away power, right? Instead of seizing mm -hmm. control. And so she called Jesus being, you know, God made human a radical throwing away of power. That's her quote on that. But she sees this throwing away of power as actually being stronger than the, the desire to seize it. And so when Meg gets this love and she's willing to throw away power, that's why she's actually, you know, strong enough to defeat it because yeah. she's taking that free will and she's taking her love and giving her power away that's why she can win mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. and so this does i think tie into the show um because ted's not a controlling coach ted is not a top down everything is under my control kind of guy and we can see with roy when he starts letting go of of power when he starts throwing away his power stops trying to control things his interactions with everyone get better right when he stops trying to be controlling of keely by being like all up in her shit at every moment of the day right <laughs> yeah. that's when the relationship can actually grow right mm -hmm. and when he backs off i mean he can't build the relationship that he ends up with with jamie until he starts really seeing who jamie is right he's trying to control mm -hmm. him and make him less of an asshole but it, that doesn't actually work for Jamie, right? And so once he figures that out, he's the one who's like, actually, the problem is, is you, you, you're not a prick anymore, right? <laughs> the word of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. By letting go of that that power and sort of letting go of of the sadism as Fromm and Lingle would, would see it. And, and also the masochism of trying to want to give the power to someone else, but actually just sort of mm -hmm. sharing that power and that free will, that's, that's when Roy's relationships with people start to become successful. And, and so there's a, a quote from Lingle. I just thought it was really interesting because you will recognize something from the show. Um, she's talking about the church and specifically she's talking about a version of the church that's in the Brothers Karamazov, right? And she said, the church, because of the great love it has for humanity, has done its best to reverse all the damage caused by Jesus with his terrible promise of the truth that will make us free. Does that sound the truth will familiar? set you free, but first it will piss you off. Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting kind of read on that. That is definitely Lingle's view of power and power dynamics and love. And, and her whole theology, right, is about free will and how we express this as love. So that's where she was going um, with the book. And, and mm -hmm. seeing Roy develop as a character like that when he starts letting go of things and, and letting people be themselves, right, and loving them by giving away power. When Ted makes him choose the captain, which isn't necessarily something that would actually happen, uh, it would be the... the coach that right. would choose. he says no 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 you're the captain you choose the next captain that's interesting in that context is that Roy who Roy picks somebody who he sees a bit of himself and you know there's sort of like breaking TV yeah. you know it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> Oops, it he's really impressed by Isaac's like vandalism that he's like yeah, you know, you know? <laughs> yes. I too am impressed by vandalism yeah <laughs> I'm just impressed by Isaac I really think it's like the fact that you we're the fourth person to speak today. Like everything you said really ties together the elements that we were all that. addressing. There's a lot of overlap across these, these themes and these characters, both in the book and in the show. I love the idea that um, 
what you had said about like kind of what Roy needs to give up in order to like expand his relationships with the other people, right? It's things that Roy is holding on to, right? That are keeping him from, from kind of experiencing these people for who they really are. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. Like Jamie is a direct competition for him, right? Like Jamie's the new young, hot thing that he was. Right. And so once he kind of like, the fact that he could open himself like you know that scene that just that beautiful scene in the locker room and like everyone's stunned and Roy just like fear just no calm qualms walks right up to Jamie and hugs him you know like right nailed that scene he I mean don't get me wrong like no Phil Dunster was amazing but just that you've seen it in his face you know, like for the minute you knew what he was going to do before he even took up the first step. You just, it was beautiful. It was a really beautiful moment. And even like the little move, like he does that thing where he's kind of like hitting his back with his fist and then he opens his fist and like, I'm like, oh my God. A real like, hug. Like the fact that, yeah. yeah. And like, um, I, I almost feel like Meg had a similar, right? Like just, she's having all these feelings and these things and like, how is she using them to express herself? and open herself up to everyone around her, which is what Roy's journey has been. There's also this theme, and I think I mentioned this in the chat, of individuality within constraints versus conformity when you have the switch from American football to, mm-hmm. to football, football, yes. right? Because American football is, it's very scripted, right? You'll see the quarterback playing and they have this huge like playbook on their arm that they have to flip through. And absolutely everyone has a specific job in every play. And you do see some creativity because plays break down and people have to make decisions. But you contrast that with, with football. You know, there's set plays and people have positions and roles, but there's so much more creativity and you have to just let go so much more as a coach. And I think Ted comments on that, right, to Henry when he's like, mm-hmm. actually, once the game starts, there's not really anything for me to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that is a, a big difference and it would be a big difference in in Ted learning to let go like that because you have to coach the games very very differently so the last chapter in Wrinkle in Time is the foolish in the week right and how that juxtaposes with the book he gave Jamie the beautiful Beautiful and the the damned damned. (laughs) (laughs) I I just thought that was kind of I never in a million years would have picked up on that that's brilliant. Well, and it's kind of funny because Jamie is the only one, and we will, I'm sure, get to this, but he's the only one who didn't get a YA book, right? He's the only one who didn't get a young adult yeah. novel. He gets this dense <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald, like, symbolism-laden thing, and everyone else is getting, you know, Wrinkle Time, Ender's Game, yeah. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar <laughs> Right. Uh, the, the, the absolute confidence that of Ted thinking Jamie would have read that though that's what I sort of think the reason he did give it to Jamie is because he knew it would just get tossed so it's a throwaway joke right the, the right. title is the joke there yeah. right and, yeah. and yeah, perhaps yeah, yeah. we'll find more depth in it when we slog through it uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure we're all gonna have I'm sure we're all gonna have our opinions on audiobook on that one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was really interesting, and I'm so glad that you all came along to help me because I was struggling big time, and I have learned so much, so many different perspectives. I've got a question, though. Did Ted pick the right book for Roy? Let's go with Bex first. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, I, it was spot on, and the fact that he could read it to Phoebe, not that Ted necessarily knew that, but like that even that made it even better because it it meant that it was a book he would actually engage with and um that's a really good point yeah this this so many 
parallels without it being like too over the top so absolutely okay what about andrea what do you think i also agree definitely um and i think uh we had even said it during one of our one of our sections this was the first book that i really felt like almost like from beginning to end was like spot on for roy so yeah kudos kudos to ted yes get one right no slurs (laughs) that i can't use (laughs) what about you marita what do you think um, I think it was. And unlike some of the books, like, you know, the, the ending of Ender's Game is a little on the depressing side, right? But this is actually a, a very life-affirming sort of book, you know, and, and even the quotes throughout, even when it's, you know, scary, Mrs. Who doing her quotes like Euripides when she says nothing is hopeless, we must hope for everything, right? There's there's just all of this sort of positive affirming uh, theme to Meg's journey in the book. So I think it was exactly what Roy needed. I think yeah. that, that ties into another quote, which to be honest, I don't remember if it was in the book because I listened to the audio, but I caught it in the film when I watched that, where she said, um, the wound is the place where the light enters you is another mm. another piece that kind That's of combines that darkness That's, with the light, which yeah. was a roomy nice. quote. It's true as well. It, re- it really, that rings true to me. And yeah, I agree with every one of you. I, I think Ted probably chose like the best book he could for Roy and it was just um, lucky that Phoebe was part of that it wasn't a decision Ted had made so it, it all worked out great and uh, yeah I, re- I really enjoyed this book and I, I love discussing it with you. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send an email to us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. If you prefer the video version, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Coach Beers Book Club, now. So, Michaela, what are we uh, What are we looking at next month for Book Club? This is fun. We are going to be having a team movie night, and we're going to watch The Iron Giant. Nice. And I expect everyone to cry. I, I'm, I will definitely <laughs> cry. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this one, though, actually. I've not actually seen it. It's my six-year-old nephew's favorite. He has like a t-shirt with... Well, it'll definitely uh, be mine because I've got the mentality of a six-year-old, so I'm going to love it. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.